Hello and welcome to Twin Peaks The Return, a podcast. This is our discussion of part 12 of the series. I'm Andy Hazel. Guess who's back? Back again. Audrey's back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Sorry, that slice of really bad late 90s uh, hip-hop uh, was brought to you by Hayley Inch. Hi. Hey, Hayley. Hi. Thanks for that. That's a, that's a first for the I'm pod. so pumped, guys. So pumped. <laughs> um, this week we're joined by two guests, both alike in knowledge and both very different in opinion. They're both PhD candidates at RMIT University with a deep and abiding love of David Lynch. It's Jess Penny and Thembi Sorrell. Hi. Hi. Do you want to correct me on the pronunciation of your name? You got, you got it right. Did I? Oh, that's a nice change. Thank you. That, that was also very much Backstreet Boys, <laughs> not, not hip-hop. <laughs> oh. Just want you to know. No, no, that's fair. We can sledge Eminem until the cows come home and I'm absolutely so okay with it. <gasps> cool, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, much like you're singing, part 12 has seemed to divide a lot of listeners and viewers. Lol. Sorry. No, no, okay. um, with pop- He's a musician. He just takes any moment to sledge me on this. <laughs> you're a musician too, evidently. <laughs> Sorry, so part 12 has seemed to divide a lot of viewers with the popular opinion being that early sections are really strong and later ones weak. Jess, are you on board with this particular view of part 12? Yes. I was on board the entire time and then saw Audrey and actually laughed. It's like my interest just plummeted. On secondary watches, maybe a little bit more, but... Mm. Mm-hmm. And Thembi? I really loved the first half and then I started getting bored, but I'm going to... There were so many strange things that happened in that end section that I'm, yeah, I'm going to kind of reserve my judgment till later. Okay. And what do you make of the entire return so far up to this point? Um, Oh my God. I've been losing my shit over this whole thing. I've just, from the beginning, I just got really, really excited because it's basically, I've been researching trauma and like representations of experiences of trauma and mental illness for the past seven years. So I'm completely obsessed with that and everything I've been seeing happening in this is really just showing a lot of what I've been researching and I just feel like they're doing an incredible job of representing experience of trauma and distressed mental states and the the experience of being between one place and another. I don't know how to explain it all that well but I've been really excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) And Jess, have you been a fan so far? Huge fan and for similar sorts of reasons to Thembi, my expertise isn't in trauma, but it is definitely one of my interests. And the representation of it has been really satisfying. The thing I found most exciting is just watching everyone be so good and watching everyone be so good at their job, like on every aspect. So cinematography, amazing. Every actor is doing incredible things. Kyle keeps doing very tiny things with his face that makes me really happy. And Grace was doing really amazing things with her face as well, and she always does. But it's just like, it's just seeing David Lynch put all of these people in the room together and just go, do your best. And everyone does their best, and it's the best thing you can see. And so it's even the quieter moments and everything, I just get too excited because I'm just like, look at his face. <laughs> look at it. Like, it's so good. I was, I think I screamed at Bembe a couple, like, <laughs> about Kyle doing one thing with his face in the police station. And he did one tiny, 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 tiny thing with his face. And I think I went on about it for about 
15 minutes. It was a great rant. Yeah. That's okay. We're always here for rants about Kyle's face because it's yeah. amazing. I'll put a picture of it attached to this podcast episode out there <gasps> on the internet just so we can all look at it. Hooray. Because it didn't make much of an appearance in part 12. Alas. Alas. But I'm sure there is more in our future. But anyway, let's pile mm, in. Let's. Let's rock. So part 12 opens in the Mayfair Hotel, which is, I think is in Buckhorn. If not, it's quite nearby. We get a plush hotel room with a red drape for a wall. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and Cole is walking around using his red box with one light to check for something that seems like it might be bugs or listening devices in the room. One light is on and Albert and Tammy sit behind him. Albert is pouring wine and says, thank God Gordon stocks the plane from his own wine cellar. And Cole, deliberately or otherwise, mishears that and answers, no, you'll be the one to tell her. And there's a big cheers, here's to the Bureau. So what did, what did you guys make of this opening scene? This is like loaded with symbolism. There is a, about to be a massive law dump in the form of um, being brought up to speed on, on Blue Rose. And we get a bit of backstory that ties in with secret history. Did you enjoy the dynamics in this scene? I always enjoy the dynamics of Cole and Albert and increasingly Tammy and Diane. I don't know. I just always wait for Albert's one-liners. Ignore the strange man. Yes. Ignore him. Pilfer all of his wine. That's that's how this relationship should work out. Um, Are you guys fans of Tammy? I love Tammy so much. I may have kind of like a big crush on her, so that might be influencing me a little bit, but... Yeah, I didn't like her to begin with because I was just like, oh, what is this? I was on the, like, David Lynch being sexist train for a little bit, but then I just kind of gradually over time came to really love her. And in this scene, it's this most beautiful moment where she gets inducted into the whole Blue Rose thing and then that music starts playing and she's just having this beautiful, like, career aspiration feeling moment. (laughs) I was just like, I'm so in love with her. Uh, Anyway. We get the full, like, soap opera realness like we did last week with that music of just, like, ah, it's so good. <laughs> and it's just really, really nice to see a woman so excited about career instead of relationships. Or is she? Whoa, hang on, what? <laughs> Sorry, just a bit of backstory. What is and- that? Andy Defs wants elaboration. Yeah, this is interesting. I have a theory that Tammy is being primed by Denise to keep an eye on Gordon and Albert because I don't think Denise fully trusts the whole Blue Rose situation and it doesn't seem to be very good. Like Albert says, they've lost three people and he's the only one left and only because he doesn't seem to be interested in going into other dimensions. I'm just thinking Denise is seen and going, dude, stop going into these lodges. <laughs> she's, she's sent Tammy after them. Keep tabs on them. I, I, I did think it was interestingly suspicious and maybe a little bit creepy when Albert says that Tammy's literally been earmarked for coming into the Blue Rose core group since she was in high school. Mm. So they've been tracking her since then. So I was kind of like, well, if the FBI in general has been tracking her for that long, who's to say it's not just Cole and Albert who are keeping tabs? Mm. Yeah, good point. And so Albert brings uh, the others up to speed. Well, we formed The FBI and the military formed a top-secret task force to explore the troubling abstractions, which is a beautiful term to use. Because it just doesn't really explain anything. Um, we called it Blue Rose, which was a phrase uttered by a woman just before she died, which suggested that these answers could not be reached except by an alternate path that we've been travelling ever since. So exciting. 
Gordon suggested an agent by the name of Philip Jeffries to head the squad. He soon recruited three others, myself, Chet Desmond, and Dale Cooper. So that's like David Bowie, Chris Isaac, Karl McLaughlin. Like, all together in one place. Can you imagine <laughs> how awesome that is? I know. It's so genius. Um, and, yeah, and David Lynch, of course. And he, perhaps you'll notice I'm the only one that hasn't disappeared with that explanation, which has left Gordon with Agent Preston. And then, of course, you've been on our radar, Dean's List, MIT, all that sort of stuff. We get a bit of uh, Tammy backstory, which is the first. Uh, and then, yeah, she gets very emotional. Uh, and there's a briefing detail in the morning meeting. And then there's a big cheers to Tammy. And then Diane appears through the red drapes in a very telling move. Albert offers her a vodka. I like it on the rocks. Cue another great one-liner from Albert. You're in luck. The Dakotas are still in the Ice Age. Um, and she makes the drinks very carefully, glass ice vodka. We get a bit of backstory about her work with Asian Cooper, which has brought her into contact with the Blue Rose. Even though you're not part of the Bureau, we'd like to deputise you on a temporary basis. So um, this was kind of confusing because I thought, well, she's kind of getting whatever she wants at the moment. What's the point of deputising her unless it's kind of a control move or a way of officially keeping an eye on her? I think that that is the move, yeah. Yeah, so her answer, what's in it for me? And they offer her some money, but... She does seem pretty excited about it, though. Like, her response is... Is the title of the episode. Let's rock. It's one of the great best moments of the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it does kind of make you think whatever sneaky machinations Diane is up to, and she's definitely up to quite a few, this offer from Cole and Albert has kind of played into clearly where she wanted to be. She's also in cahoots with Denise. Yes. Yeah, yes. The, yes. Um, who, who did we float this with a couple of weeks ago? Um, I it was a whole thing we floated. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was yeah. My, my whole Denise yes. theory. What the, Denise and Diane working on their own Doppelcoop investigation. I'm glad other people are also coming to this conclusion I because know, it would I be love fucking this. badass. It is. It's, <laughs> it's an awesome situation. And how brilliant was the backwards whooshing noise that accompanied Diane's dual finger movement with a let's rock? Oh. It was an old firewalk with me, Q. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. It was um, it was a, it was a it was Black Lodge mm. moment. I think with mm. the backward sounds. Later, sorry, uh, Diane is downstairs in the hotel bar, assuming uh, we're assuming drinking a martini, and she checks her phone and gets the, the Las Vegas question mark message from an unknown number, and then she replies in all caps, "They haven't asked yet." Did anyone notice that she has a pattern on her phone that's exactly like the very hungry caterpillar? <laughs> It's um, <laughs> no. It's like a. I did not. No one's mentioned this, but I thought it was very unusual. I the actually, pastel leaf. I recognise the design. My sister has some cookie tins that are the same. It's like a very popular Scandinavian. It was a very unusual design, I thought, for Diane. I would have expected. It matches her manicure. Right. Mm. It's got same the same colours. Have you done a bit of research on her nails? I have. I'm sometimes a nail technician. And so I got very excited by her nails and I looked at multiple stills of them and then did it to myself and then noticed today that she's got a nice new gemstone and it's been freshened up. In earlier scenes, she had chips on some of them and now it's all nice and shiny and new. Mm. So she's had a, she's treated herself. (laughs) Cool, and she deserves it. Um, and later on, we, another scene in the bar, she's drinking and she looks at the map and tries to recall the coordinates that she saw from Ruth's arm. And then she zooms in on another example of technology and how conveniently it works in Twin Peaks <laughs> into the town itself in the top corner of Washington State. I wanted to know, and so did Thembi, about what you guys thought about her costume changes. Thembi, speak more on that. <laughs> <laughs> in the first scene in the bar, she's wearing the 
outfit with the red top and then when she's doing the coordinates thing she's wearing the green top that occurs late in the episode like long after the red top scene and that top she was wearing in the scene where she was actually looking at the coordinates which was the day before I'm wondering about like what her outfits are saying about the way time is being represented in the shows does that make sense? Mm. Yes, definitely. Yeah, this is a big question mark. Um, the way, particularly the last couple of episodes, we seem to be moving all over the place because yeah. we get a revelation that Billy has been missing for two days, according to Audrey, which we saw Billy in part five, I think. Ah, yeah, so right. So there is some, yeah, some crazy juxtapositions going on here. But I guess, you know, yeah, this sort of stuff does seem to be coming up quite a bit. Mm. And I don't know, I just come back to Lynch's quote of, like, you can watch these episodes in any order you like. Has oh, he said that? Yes, he said that Thanks. before the whole thing started. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> oh, my God. That's really exciting. It's like choose your own adventure. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but that's a really good point. And other people have picked up on that costume change thing. And Do you know the other thing that's actually really interesting about that, like you just watch it in whatever order you want to, is sorry if I go back to trauma a lot during this, but when you've experienced trauma and you start like revisiting it in your mind, usually before it's been processed it's just all over the place it's not in a particular order and it takes a lot to kind of start creating a narrative out of what you've experienced and one of the things I really love about the show is the way that narrative and experience is pushing and pulling and tugging with one another and your narrative is represented in this way that is far more like the narrative's experience in trauma right so it's like an organization yeah is is it important that it happens in a particular temporality or can it just be whatever is the most healing and effective in terms of experiencing trauma or well i mean there is this particular type of therapy called narrative exposure therapy which is all about putting the trauma into a narrative sequence that also includes your life outside of that i've had experiences with my therapist kind of making me actually kind of start from the beginning and tell a story right through to the end and that's been a really like that's she said to me that's how she can tell if somebody's processed a trauma or not is if they can go from start to end right okay so yeah i find that pretty interesting yeah yeah that ties back a lot with laura Mm. i suppose in her secret diary and then the telling of her story here i also do want to mention the amazing sound design in that scene of the one with the green top when she's looking at twin peaks that I was just dying over that scene. I don't think I mentioned at the beginning when you asked me what I liked about Twin Peaks. Like, it's the sound design is so exciting to me. The fact that the whole thing started off saying, Agent Cooper, listen to the sounds. I just totally lost my shit because sound is like my complete obsession. So, I also wondered if when it zoomed in on Twin Peaks, on Diane's phone, that we started hearing the, the hum from the Great Northern. No, well. I, I looked into oh. that. Sorry. <laughs> um, Correct me. Yeah. <laughs> I did actually kind of put the two back to back. And when I first listened, I didn't think it was. And yeah, I still don't think it is. They, mm. They're different frequencies. And also the sound in the one when we zoom into Twin Peaks is just like more bandpass filtery, whereas the other sound is quite luscious. Mm. Even though it's soft, it's luscious. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just break down bandpass filtery? Um, does, is, is, is this melodic or is this something more textural? Like sort bandpass of? filter is basically a filter that cuts out, so it leaves a certain frequency band but cuts everything out from either side. And there's just a certain sound that when you've used bandpass filters a lot, you start to just notice if something's got a bit of that sort of right, sound to okay. it. So, yeah. Because straight after that, we do get a cut to the trees at night. Mm. Over oh God, and I love one of those gorgeous shots that I don't think the technology existed for in 1991, but, but yes, I'm very it's glad so it does good. now. 
It also looks like it was going over like a flattened kind of plain area, which I thought, are they showing us Jackrabbit's Palace early or something? Right, yeah. it sort of like came over a ridge and then there was a flattened bit and I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. Cool. Um, so in the hotel room, a woman in a red dress is lying with her head on Cole's shoulder as he talks. They laid the trap and then 75 strong, they came over the mountain, sirens wailing, guns drawn. I'm not really sure what he's talking about there. And then he's interrupted by a knock on the door from Albert. And Albert comes in and then Albert asks, would you please ask your friend to wait downstairs? And then we get this extraordinarily elaborate, very, very protracted scene, which I'm not sure if this is like some sort of code, physical code in the style of Lil that's happening here. That's still very much open to suspicion. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of shake, shaking heads in this room. It was just fantastic. <laughs> it was. It was really striking. It's one of my favourite scenes so far. And there's loads of them, but I just, I loved her smile. I loved how purposefully she was wasting their time. I, I'm in love with her. Mm. And I understand why Cole was looking at her like that because I was too. She was incredible. Um, it, it was a throwback to Cole's mention of, like, this is a girl worth learning a bit of French for. <laughs> and, of course, we get the most basic oui, mon chéri, and then très chic. Because every single episode we've seen France in the, uh, the closing credits because part of the funding comes from mm. France. And so I think along with that funding we need some shots in shot in France we're maybe with French actresses I'm not really sure whether this is part of the funding arrangement but it did make me think at some point we're probably going to see France so I was wondering whether this was actually shot in Paris <laughs> we needed some French in here to be able to connect it with a scene later on that's going to be in France perhaps so I have this theory that Cole Gordon Cole is pretty evil I feel like the whole of part eight the point of it was to give us this impression that he's a bad guy and I felt like this scene with the French girls was reinforcing this a little bit. The way that he really sexualizes women is not... He's kind of critiquing that as a, a sign that this guy's a bad dude. Right, okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know if anybody else thought that. <laughs> <laughs> what did you make of this whole scene, Hayley? Me? Oh, I, it was just a continuation of my feeling that Cole is a massive dirtbag who <laughs> just will just fall over for any pretty woman who just who just looks his way and also the fact I very much also enjoyed the feeling during this entire sequence where this woman is just like piss farting around where you just feel like Albert can barely contain himself <laughs> at this outrage <laughs> but because of whatever's going on he's not going to dissolve into one of his like standard freakouts but you can feel the entire time he's just about to explode like the bisexual nightmare that he is and I <laughs> love him <laughs> oh, the continuing Albert fanfic that I'm eventually going to write once all of this is done just got so much material from this oh, episode. Yeah, I can you title it "The Straits Aren't Okay"? Done. <laughs> I did. I was definitely watching um, him in this scene, just thinking he's just looking at these guys, going, "Heterosexuals are disgusting." <laughs> This whole scene struck me as like if SNL did like a skit in which they were like taking the piss out of Gordon Cole, they would make a woman look exactly like this. Because she's a bit Isabella Rossellini, she's a bit Lil from Firewalk with me. She's a, a do, do SNL come back before Twin Peaks finishes? Because they also famously did sketches when the original Twin Peaks was on, when like Carl McLaughlin was on hosting and yeah, things like that. Yeah. So I just I really require this to happen again. It just would 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 fill fill a lot of feelings within me. Kyle would be an even better host now. He's only gotten funnier and less sexy. I love it. And in fact, the entire thing could just be seen as a as a setup for a really bad dad joke that Cole then pulls out <laughs> about turnips. Paternalism. 
paternalism. Yeah. Sorry, can you elaborate on that? I'm just going to say paternalism okay. throughout the, the podcast and I'll okay. get to the point later. No, plan. Is this Good. a hashtag that I should be aware of? No. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, and then Cole, like, checks Albert's passive face and power slash passive aggressive face and says she didn't get it either. Being French doesn't translate. Before Albert finally manages to impart his information, which is incoming to Diane, Las Vegas, question mark, outgoing, they haven't asked yet. And then Cole says, what do we know that we haven't asked her about? Then he pauses and they share a beautiful, like, br- I don't know, a bromance moment? I don't know. It's there's some sort of deep mutual understanding and respect. Paternalism. Paternalism. Thank Paternalism. you. Yeah, and now I'd really like to get back to this fine Bordeaux, which could be seen as a meta commentary on guys just stop analysing the hell out of my show and just sip it like a <laughs> Bordeaux. But I, know, I feel like people look for meta too much in Twin Peaks. Did you take that a bit personally? No. It was something that, you know, it's like a nice reminder. TM, just chill out and let things flow through you rather than needing to engage yourself all the time. And he's often quite chill with these directions that he feels like he's getting from Lynch through the text. Well, I just need yeah. to chill out a bit sometimes. <laughs> it's just a lot, lot to digest. Um, what kind is it? 11.05. <laughs> then, Albert, sometimes I really worry about you. Is that paternalism? It is paternalism. Thank you. Right, I'm getting on board with this thing now. Also, can I just mention the shoulder squeezing? Mm. Like, so much of that. I have this whole thing that I'm really attached. D- don't send me messages, Jess. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like the shoulder squeezes are like messages. It's like some kind of code where they're communicating through shoulder squeezes, saying things that can't be said just in case someone's listening. Am I crazy? No, I'm into this. I'm full into this. Awesome. Yes. I actually tried to decode in episode seven when Gordon Cole's rubbing Diane's shoulder, I tried to translate it into Morse code because <laughs> it didn't work. I also, I, I got like a, you know, pen and paper and I like wrote the words he was saying and was like underlining <laughs> with the squeezes. And you like, tell me that. I got confused <laughs> and then just threw the piece of paper out. I threw mine out too. It said something like Voskog or something like that. This this is totally the kind of high-class Twin Peaks nerdery that I myself do not have the mind to partake in, but I love it when other people do it. It's really dumb, especially when it doesn't work. It's not dumb. It's the most amazing thing. It's like community fan service. What am I going to do when Twin Peaks is over? I don't know. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting excited. I don't know Morse code. Okay. Don't trust me. On that note, back to the show. Uh, so a camera pans across a house. Then it pulls back a little bit and we see Hutch and Chantel sitting in a shiny black van outside. So straight away we see this house and it spends quite a long time panning over this and I'm like, this could literally be like any one of about 35 houses that would plausibly fit into this narrative. It's a beautiful house and I also saw that someone noticed that there's an eclipsed moon above it that looks like the moon on top of the little little tiny ear boy. Right, okay, interesting. So we're approaching Jack Rabbit o'clock. Oh, my God. Um, so Hutch and Chantel are sitting in a shiny black van outside this house. They discuss various ways they might dispose of Warden Murphy, who they've been assigned to kill by Doppelcoop. They discuss torturing him and shooting him in the legs. And then soon enough, a car approaches. Hutch aims his sniper rifle at Warden Murphy and shoots him in the back. Second shot, it hits his head. And then a little boy runs out and screams, Daddy. And then they say... Paternalism. Oh, thank you, yep. <laughs> Next stop, Wendy's, and drive away. And Chantal is also eating a corn-based snack. Well spotted. 
I enjoy the fact that Hutch checks in with Chantel at least twice before they kill him. You know, he's looking out for her needs. They have a very caring, supportive, really fucked up relationship. He seemed pretty disappointed that he didn't get to shoot him in the legs and torture him a Mm. bit. But, you know, Chantel was hungry. She's hungry. She she needs a burger. She wants some Wendy's. Yeah. That ginger temptress. Okay, and then we arrive in Twin Peaks. And I'm so glad Jerry's okay. Yes, Jerry's running out of a forest across a field. He made it out, guys. He falls over, he, he gets it. up, he keeps running. Um, it's a very beautiful field with a gorgeous mountain in the it's background. It's really stressful being lost up a mountain, so I felt visceral relief at seeing him running down into a plane. I'm like, you got down, Jerry, you yeah. did it. Considering how high he was, it really is a miracle that he didn't accidentally like, trip over something and just fall into a ravine. Mm. Yeah, I'm really intrigued to see where he winds up. In a local supermarket, Sarah Palmer is shopping. Now, this is a... Um, she's not shopping. She's cruising the liquor aisle. That's what she's doing. Um, this was a promotional image that we saw. Mm. And so, like, six months ago, various Twin Peaks fan friends of mine were, like, recreating this scene very accurately with bottles of Bloody Mary mix. I noticed also she's eating something too. There were, like, toaster pizzas or something in her cart as well, which I was heartened to see. Mm. She's getting some actual, some, actual some solid food. Yeah. yeah, yeah. she does need that fibre. Oh, she also did one of my favourite face things in this scene was when she's looking kind of like mm, wine and then she does this tiny little smile when she sees her favourite vodka and it's really, really cute and, and really sad. Special. Was it? I think it was on special. That's why she gets like a couple of them. Well, I, I thought it was just like, oh, shit, there's my brand. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, boys. But then her face changes again when she realises she can only get three. Yeah. There was like a fourth bottle that's really going to mess up that ratio of vodka to Bloody Mary mix. Every single expression that Grace Zabriskie does in this entire episode is just my favourite thing. How is she not in more things? I don't know. Yeah, this is How has David Lynch only tapped this and Seinfeld a bit too, but like... Still, I don't feel it's good enough for her. Yeah, true. She deserves more. Um, Then comes up the counter to buy a carton of Salem's because she's not messing around, um, (laughs) never been known to. She seems drawn to the turkey jerky or beef jerky hanging behind. Albatross brand. Albatross brand. Did you notice the symbol next to the Albatross brand? No. It was a bit motherish. Ooh. A bit, you know, ant Mm. or experiment, whatever you're going to call that that thing. Uh, Victoria is a sales assistant. It was um, the Taurus symbol as well. It wasn't something that was there before and that seems to be the thing that's disturbing. Yeah, so the conversation here is fascinating. She asks if it's smoked. Victoria tries to help be helpful and she explains that it's just beef jerky only made from turkey. And then we get the music coming in after this. And then were you here where they first came? Your room seems different and men are coming. And then Victoria's trying to make uh, head and tail of this. Oscar is also looking a bit confused, the other sales assistant standing next to her. I'm not sure I know what you mean, she says. I'm trying to tell you that you have to watch out. Things can happen. Something happened to me. Something is happening to me. I don't feel good. Then she starts talking to herself in the third person. Sarah, stop doing this. Okay, leave this place. And then she says, find the car keys, get the goddamn car keys, and gets very heightened and anxious. And then we get the music from above the convenience store from Firewalk With Me playing, which also played in the background of Teresa's autopsy in Firewalk With Me. And the Fat Trout. That's The original Fat Trout. It was whenever, I think when we saw... It was before we'd see the f- telephone poles with the numbers and then we'd get the electricity sound, I think, before then. Yeah. The so, this, yeah, this music has been used in some very key scenes in the past. Oscar offers to deliver the shopping she's left behind. He's a nice boy. Yeah, he does. What a good boy. Mm. Yeah. He deserves a raise. I, this scene, I... Well, actually, I actually just started sobbing during this scene because I let myself feel the emotions. Part of what I'm loving about Twin Peaks is just 
it's a big catharsis for me. So I laughed really hard in the scene beforehand. And then as soon as this one started, I just was sobbing. And it's that moment where like, she's looking at the beef jerky and the sound changes. And they just represented that moment where you're sort of between the reality that's happening right here and what you know has happened in your head. It was just like, fuck. Then the things that she starts saying is like, something is happening, something's mm. happened to me. And I know that in my experiences when I've gone through some, some stuff, you kind of walk around in this world and just feel like internally you're just screaming, how does everybody not know what's happened? This horrible thing. And yeah, she just played that so well and it was pretty incredible and pretty emotional. Mm. Yeah, I, w- I was massively emotional during this scene as well because it just it just really shows what's been established so well during this new series is how much Twin Peaks, the town, has changed and how many people don't know what happened, that it's become almost like this buried thing. And Sarah suddenly appears in this episode almost as, as if she's a still-walking wound but no one else around her knows what's happened. No one else around her knows what she suffered apart from people who were with her at that time. Like in the later scene where we see Hawk comes and visits her and you can tell between their conversation, it's just an unspoken thing of they both know that they're talking about Laura, but they're not going to say it out loud or extremely explicitly. It's really wonderful how these waves of the trauma of the first series just keeps coming back Mm. and back and back. And it's almost like I feel like we're we're coming towards a crescendo shortly, Mm. which I think is going to crash over everything. Yeah, can I also say this other thing about that is I was actually thinking of what she was saying a bit like it was more a foretelling of what's about to come. Yeah, like she's a seer. Yeah, yeah and I was quite mm. excited by that idea as well because, you know, if you look at sort of theories of mental illness and our society tends to just go, yeah, it's people who are sick and they don't know what they're on about. But there are a lot of people who think, well, actually, these are people who are in tune with things that maybe not everybody can see and what everybody can know. And I really feel like, you know, even though she's having a hard time it's also showing that she's got this knowledge and this strength and it's I I find these portrayals of kind of people with I mean I actually hate the term mental illness and so I probably shouldn't be using it but there's these really complex representations of what that experience is and why it's happened and and the importance of people and what they have to share yeah Mm. it yeah it it always seems within this world that's the people who've suffered the most trauma who have the most to give to situations and the most knowledge about things i mean sarah is essentially standing there in the convenience store going you people don't understand that the shit that i've seen and you also don't understand that it's going to happen again yeah and there's the powerlessness i guess that comes along with that too Mm. at least that's what we think because in the past she's been a conduit a lot so she was like you know she was expressing grief an awful lot at the beginning of season one by the end of the season two she's actually a conduit for the voice from the lodge when dr jacoby passes on a message to garland briggs and we never really know who that voice is i mean there was supposed to be Wyndham earl at the time it could be doppelgoop hadn't really been invented by that point but then it's the lodge so yeah so time is a weird thing but um anyway she's definitely connected very closely with that Particularly um, in the later scene, which I guess we can just talk about as well, in, when, she's, when Hawks comes to visit uh, at the Palmer household, in which she is still living, which I find a really fascinating thing for somebody who's been through trauma. Oh, my God. Yeah. We were just yes. 
yeah. like, why are you still there? Yeah. And the fact that it creepily looks still so much the same. Yeah, just some dead grass, I noticed, mm. in the front. It just anything. made me keep, like, I just kept thinking, who's looking after you? Like, why are you living in this mm. house still? How are you affording anything? Mm. I don't know who's looking after Sarah Palmer, and it's very it's upsetting It's really distressing. Me. She's looking after herself. She's doing fine. She's got the vodka. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's throwing down $133.70 for, <laughs> for vodka. Oh, the Salem's and vodka. And Salem. she's, she, yeah. she's got vodka, and she's got... The National Geographic yeah. Channel. <laughs> She's got ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, so it's a very interesting life that she seems to be living from what we can gather. Hawk arrives, he walks up the stairs very closely. We, then we get this fascinating shot of the fan that we've never mm. seen from an angle we haven't seen before through the window and it's spinning, which is always ominous. Uh, and then we see a shot of Hawk through the curtain and then Sarah answers after seemingly coming from some different part of the house. Hawk is very concerned, very caring. Paternalism. Is it? Okay. <laughs> right. Every time I say that, it's not a bad thing. Um, an old case has popped up and I thought of you. People are worried about you. Then she talks about the grocery store, which we saw earlier. And then we hear a noise stirring inside. And she says, oh, no, that's just something in the kitchen. Yeah, I'm really fascinated to know. This is possibly the most mysterious and exciting part of the entire episode. What's I thought. in the kitchen? What's in the kitchen, yes. <laughs> now, you're a, it's a goddamn bad story, isn't it, Hawk? Oh. And then he offers help of any kind and then she says thank you and closes the door. Yes. I also think it's telling that just before this scene starts we have the scene of the mist going across the mountains and badly lamenting. Yes, we get an old cue. Yeah. Laura's theme. The scary, the darker part of Laura's yeah. theme. Mm, so she's around. Um, because this, this reminded me, um, this is the one thing that... Um, is Laura in the kitchen? Oh <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. be so strung out if it was Laura though I'm not sure well she says something something it's not somebody yeah. so there's various theories uh, Laura is possibility she, the fact that she talked about men are coming people think woodsmen the only groups of men we've seen before yeah. although I feel like it's unlikely she's referring to the bookhouse boys or Grey Gardens it's raccoons and cats yeah. <laughs> that, I love that theory that's cool um, also there's a theory that she's got the Oscar Oscar a prisoner the delivery boy because he did say he was going to come to the house, but we didn't don't see any delivery vehicle at the front. And if she is a vehicle for Bob or Would something he drive? dark, he's very little. It's yeah. America. He, he can about drive. So he looked about 14. twelve, though. Yeah, yeah. He looked very young. He was a baby. This is just because we are old now, Jess, <laughs> <laughs> and we think that people who are in their twenties are like really young. They're babies. <laughs> um, because as far as evil has gone in, in the past, Sarah's often talked about what is going on with this house. She refers to this house. So we need order in this house. And so it's very much about what is what is happening at seven oh eight, whatever this street name mm. is now, and what's in it. Because she's always struggled to kind of keep control of the various entities within it. Well, that's because she was getting roofied by her husband, Andy. Come on, yeah, give her yeah, a break. Yeah. I'm giving her plenty of breaks. I <laughs> would like to know what's in the kitchen. It was, yeah, a really powerful scene. Loved Grace Zabriskie's mm. moment, every she's single moment she had. incredible. Like, mm. there's the way that, you know, in the grocery store she'd just com- completely broken down and then mm. saying the things that she's thinking that other people are thinking of her, even mm. though she doesn't believe it. She's just like, yeah... It was like she gave two completely different performances and they were both Im- just amazing. This is the thing. Everyone's do- everyone's being the best <laughs> in this show, like the best they've ever been. They're all being so, so good. It's, uh, it's mm. Yeah, it's just Grace Zabriskie's good tends to put other people's goods mm. to them. Um, They're all incredible, in the, though. In the mm. yeah. 
Cork too. Yeah. The way he delivered oh. all of his lines. Yeah, he's got a stillness that you just. Oh my it's god! Really hard to find. I have a massive, massive, massive crush on him. Even his bobbish hair. He's ah. Oh. He's, it's like it's, it comes from a, a, a place of deep compassion and just you're a good man. <laughs> Very good. Is that paternalism as well? <laughs> maternalism. Yes. Oh, a bit of maternalism? Yeah. Okay. Another elderly resident appears in, in another scene in Twin Peaks, which is a man called Criscoll walking past Carl's office in the fat tra- trailer park past his 9.30am never before. Uh, and then they have a conversation about how Criscoll's been selling his blood. Paternalism. Right, yep. Okay, people looking out for each other. Talks about the various chores that Chris Cole has been doing and not being getting paid for and then says don't pay me any rent. Here's $50. Next time you're thinking about selling your blood, come and talk to me about it. Keep your blood. If yeah. that, that's, this is the part where I just started welling up because just the way he was talking about, like, I don't like people selling their blood for food. Keep your blood. Like, mm. I, I will keep my blood. Yeah. I will. There's some really... I think there's some very telling things happening in this scene and also the later scenes where we discover that Miriam is in hospital and then further later on when it's discovered she has no insurance and she needs someone to help pay her medical bills because otherwise she's not going to be able to have the operation that she needs in order to presumably pull through. And, yeah, it kind of fits into this bigger schema within this new series of that's essentially about the continuing decay of America and how everything is just collapsing underneath the veneer. Mm. Yeah. We are seeing a front quarter view of David Lynch turning from a Reaganite to a bleeding heart and I love it. Is there is an entire doctoral thesis in this, people. Yeah, it is. Um, for those keeping track at home of Lynch referencing his earlier works, I took this to be his straight story moment because he's referenced pretty much everything else he's done up until this point and now we get a bit of men just looking out for each other. Mm. Paternalism. Thank you. <laughs> Might as well just skip to the, last, the single scene in Las Vegas as well, which happens... Paternalism. Just here as well with Sonny Jim trying to play baseball with Dougie. Which just doesn't go well. Carl oh. just doesn't. He's not, he's not got the motor skills yet to... Respond. No. He's so happy to be there, though. Yeah, I know. You can tell. He really enjoyed getting that ball thrown at him. Yeah. Just, <laughs> oh, sensory stimulation. Yeah. Ah. Mm. yeah. That was beautiful. Yes. I love Dougie. Me too. I love him so much. Yeah, I think this scene really could have been in any of the last ten episodes. It doesn't really need to be here, but it just works. Thematically. But paternalism. Paternalism. Had yeah. to be here. Um, also, it's the only uh, way he could have gotten a star in Carl McLaughlin credit in the closing credits, I thought, was to have this moment. <laughs> Lynch would have done it anyway. Probably. He would have just slapped it on. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a gorgeous little scene. And could maybe it could be the thing that wakes him up. <laughs> You're so hopeful, Andy. I am. Next step, w- for sure. I wish everyone could just see Andy's face right now. It's full of oh, just a beautiful joy. hope. It's, love, it's wonderful. And it's yeah. going to... Um, oh, honey... <laughs> But it's yeah. really, uh, it's, it's really funny because I feel like now I'm just gonna shit on you for right here. Oh no! <laughs> but like I've just been getting frustrated with everybody being like, I just want, I, I want, I want Cooper back. I want like Dougie to wake up instead of just appreciating Dougie for who he is and what well, he's Cooper experiencing. Cooper for who he is. Well, yeah, that he's it, Cooper. Yeah. Mm. Mm. No, I'm with you there. Um, a panning shot along a corridor and a disembodied voice. We're in Calhoun Memorial Hospital in Twin Peaks. And the camera pans up the body of a patient who turns out to be Miriam. Um, also, I thought it was interesting that the shot we got of the corridor opening this scene is a, is a zoom on a digital still image. 
It was just a shot. Yeah, it was, just, it was very strange, very I unusual for that. that. It looked almost exactly like old Twin Peaks. So it's. I did wonder if they actually copied a, a scene. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, though. I would have to go back and check, but I felt so, it was so familiar. The colours. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we do get a copied scene later on. Yes. But before then, we get to Ben Horn's office and uh, Frank Truman turns up and they have a very long conversation <laughs> about what it's not very easy to say, Ben. Your grandson, Richard, was the one who ran over and killed that little boy. And then... That boy has never been right. Yes, there was a lot of telling statements in this interaction, I thought. Um, and it looks like he tried to kill the only witness who saw him do it, and she's in intensive care with no insurance and desperately needs an operation. And, of course, Ben leaps to the defence of uh, Miriam and says he'll pay whatever it costs, although he doesn't remember her last name, and they'll know who she is when he tells, explains it to Beverly later on. A little bit of adultery can't keep a good boy down. Mm. He's still a good boy. Yeah, yeah, but it's, yeah, there's so, it, so, so a bunch of the key things in this is the handing over of, key, of room key 315 to the Sheriff's Department, which is great. We know that Harry is, on, is aware of what's going on here. And has had previous run-ins with Richard, which is curious. Yep. Mm. Ben's response to the news that there's a, a reopening of a case involving Cooper, he has a really cryptic response to this. Mm, I spotted that too. Talking of face acting. Yeah, he sort of has this thing of, like, shit. Yeah. I'm gonna, like, am I going to be implicated in this again? Because... I don't know, sometimes with Ben, because he seems so different, you sort of forget, well, I don't forget, but you could forget how implicit he was in a lot of the abuse of Laura and loads of young girls. So his, re his reaction to we're opening up an old case was very, very interesting. Mm. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, made, makes a lot more sense to his little trip down memory lane. As well. Yes, the feeling fi finishes the scene. A nice trip rather than, oh, yeah, I almost raped my daughter. Yeah, because <laughs> it's interesting comparing it to the last time he talked about it when he was explaining it to Beverly and he barely seemed to remember, mm. like, who Laura Palmer was mm. or what happened in that room. That was a room that Agent Cooper got shot in. But No, I think, I think he remembers very, very well and I think it's very telling that, you know, the sheriff felt that he could clearly come to Ben and say, yo, you your grandson has nearly killed a woman. Can you pay her medical expenses? Which is like a friggin' loaded thing to to ask of someone. But clearly, Sheriff Truman has asked this, knowing or at least assuming that Ben would say yes, and he's done so immediately without any forethought or anything like that. And then you see the rest of the scene unfold, and you kind of realise, wow, Ben Horn has clearly done a lot of work trying to make everyone forget who he used to be and what he used to do mm. and keeping that separation between who he feels he is and who he hopes everyone else feels he is now separate from the Ben Horn that he used to be is like paramount mm. yeah this is also a scene with four lamps I've been counting lamps and this is a very one of the most notably lamp heavy scenes because <laughs> Oftentimes, Twin Peaks does seem to be an ad for various lamps with it's some drama thrown around it. It's you should beautiful only lighting. ever yeah. use lamps in your living room, mm. especially at night. Yeah. Yeah, so he's, he's given this kind of fairly traumatic news, uh, which he then relays to Beverly after Frank leaves. Then he goes on this um, trip down memory lane that you mentioned. I remember riding my, the bike my father got me, this old Schwinn. Paternalism. Paternalism. I mean, Richard never had a father, of course, but then it's, rather than thinking about the, you know, his various failings as a human being and as a parent and 
lack of paternalism in many cases. And he, instead, he, th he goes down this memory lane about this bike, and which makes Beverly cry. Then he sends her off to do the hospital thing. And then after she leaves, he has this beautiful little moment to himself where... It, which I think it also shows off what a good, good actor Richard Bayman can be when he just has to sit there at the desk and say, I love that bike, I love that bike that my father got me. Mm. So it becomes this very selfish like relationship about caring and absent and present fathers. I have this thing about this. So Jess always comes up with a theme for the episodes and I don't usually do it, but I did with this one <laughs> and mine is different to hers. <laughs> but for this episode, I feel like the whole thing was kind of like meditations on the way that people emote. In each of the scenes, we kind of see, you know, like we begin with Tammy kind of emoting about this career promotion and then we've got Sarah kind of emoting about her trauma and then this scene is the way that Ben chooses to emote. Ashley Judd's performance was beautiful there as well. <gasps> Talking mm. about great faces. Oh, oh God, my yeah. God. This is definitely <clears throat> one of the things I'm loving about Twin Peaks is the, all the variations of emotions and, and the details and the different kinds and there's just so many different expressions or ways that people experience feelings and emotions. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah I also think it's very interesting that even though he expresses regret at what Richard has done, he doesn't get up out of the chair at any point or leave the desk. He solves the problem with money. He doesn't go, want to go visit her. He doesn't want to go and check on the rest of his family. As far as we know, he hasn't gone to see Sylvia and, or Johnny. Johnny. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting example of Paternal. paternalism. <laughs> That we get. He still seems like a bit of a shit, really. Yeah, he's a bit of a shit, yeah, definitely, very and very selfish. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, so it's a <laughs> meditation on paternalism, you could even say. Yeah. Um, there's a caravan in the woods, and inside is Dr. Jacoby, a.k.a. Dr. Amp, with a recycled scene from part five, yeah. word for word. There we go. Um, well, you know, he recycles content like everyone else on the internet. I thought this first time we saw it, and I thought it again that his, one of his opening lines is very reminiscent of the tapes that he used to get from Laura when he says, so what's on your mind? You know I'm going to tell you what's on mine. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure Laura sent him a tape that said something almost exactly the same. And I told I'm sorry, I should have mm. looked it up, but that just, yeah. Hearing it again, I was like, yeah, okay. Mm, I interesting. I not, yeah, not noticed that before. Um, he would have been quite messed up from all the Laura stuff too. Yeah. And you being attacked. Mm. You always, like, there's so much happened because of Laura and from yeah, Laura. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of little reminders in this episode mm. of, like, that's a far reach. Mm. And I think with Jacoby in particular, like, I think he, at least in the original series, seemed to keep most of his emotional reactions to things under wraps. But clearly how we see him now is, you know, this is what happens when you repress this shit for 25 years, you know. You end up a crazed libertarian up a mountain. Yeah. We get an excerpt from his article in The Secret History of Twin Peaks about uh, his experiences in the Amazon with psychotropic drugs. And he lost his medical licence too, well, didn't he? Certainly did. Very and for very good did. reason. Yes. Uh, <laughs> excess paternalism, you might say, in some cases. Yes. We cut away from the scene with fuck you in the arse, you treasonous puppets. The ninth level of hell will welcome you. And then we cut to a fireplace, standing in front of which is Audrey. I love how Andy only swears on the podcast when he's quoting oh, other yeah. characters. There's just no going need to off. otherwise, I don't care. Can I just say that we skipped Nadine yeah. and her Dean. amazing oh, sorry. Yeah. responses? Yeah. I was just like, she was basically having an orgasm listening to that. <laughs> So There's good. definitely something sensual going on there. She's <laughs> having she, some times. Yeah. And we also she, noticed a wedding ring on her hand for the first time in this particular. Mm. Oh, I didn't notice that. 
Yeah, I did very much appreciate her. Oh, he's good. I love Well, her. it's working for her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is, yeah. Yeah, it's a, a fantastic endorsement. From a very successful <laughs> businesswoman. <laughs> I need to get me one of these shovels. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're very cheap. You know, considering all the shit that they're going to shovel for Two you, like it's an extraordinary bargain. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I did check to see if you can actually order them. <laughs> I was like, are there details? Like, that would be amazing. You wouldn't think Showtime would have made a mock website, like, it, surely. Well, they've made plenty so of other good. ones. Mm. Yeah, or yeah, well, they've tapped into other ones. Ninth level of hell will welcome you. A fireplace. Audrey. Yay. Mid-pan, as if we've just missed out on half a scene and... David Lynch decided, just, oh, we'll just throw it in here. This could, there's probably a whole bunch of conversation that went on beforehand that we don't need. It was for a reason. really good shot. Mm. We get a lot, like a panic shot of Audrey sitting, who's looking at a man who's sitting in a chair at a very messy desk, um, a very short man with a sour expression. Audrey's dressed in a shiny black um, sparkly dress with a red jacket on her arm and wearing quite strong makeup, I've noticed, um, and she looks very concerned. Okay, I'm tired of waiting for the phone to ring. I'm going to the roadhouse. And then we start a conversation in which it turns out that Billy is missing and the, um, her partner, Charlie, is uh, very reluctant to get up out of the chair. He's a sleepy, he's a sleepy man. Yeah, he is. He's tired. <laughs> yeah. It's late. Look at all this paperwork. And if, you know... Can't we start on the light of day? It's really late. If, 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 like, if it's matching up with Gordon Cole, who told the time to Albert and it's 11.05... That's p- way past anyone's bedtime. Yeah, yeah. Audrey can go to the roadhouse on her own. Stay She'll here be and fine. get some sleep, yeah. Yeah. Why can't she go on her own, though? Yeah. What is going on? There is a situation there is. here. I kind of love how we've had all this anticipation for this character coming back because she has been, along with Ed, who still hasn't shown up yet, she and Ed have been, like, the very conspicuous absentees mm-hmm. of, of the series so far and yes there's been a lot of people yelling about it yep. me very much so but I just kind of love with the insouciance in which Lynch just throws us into this middle of a scene and gives us a ginormous Audrey scene where we literally have no <laughs> fucking context for what is going on with anything and like look I've, I've, I've seen some commentary where people have found this really anticlimactic it's made them angry they feel like that the way Audrey has been situated and characterised within this. They're like, oh, my God, we waited so long for her and the first scene we get is her being some shrewy wife chewing out her husband. What saved it for me and made it really fucking intriguing was the fact that, one, Sherilyn Fenn does not give any quarter and she is just chewing this up and spitting it out and she fucking loves it. And it is her. It is Audrey. It's Audrey 25 years on and I kind of feel like... If you'd expected Audrey to show up without some really weird fucking shit going on, I'm kind of like, well, you, I don't know if you really paid that much close attention to her in the original series because she always had weird fucking shit going on and you always kind of knew that she'd become this sort of adult, you know, within schemes and machinations. And there's clearly schemes going on. She's in a sham marriage, for one, clearly, that has been based on some kind of mysterious contract, you know, why is she married to this dude, you know? He's clearly either got something to give or has something on her. I really love that this is just this bonkers jar of possibility yes. that's just being yeah. thrown all over us like a glitter bomb. <laughs> and we're all just sitting there just going like, what is happening? What's going on? <laughs> but there's just... 
I don't know. I, I felt really jazzed by it. Mm. I kind of sat up and was just like, oh, wow, I feel really unsteady and really uncertain as to what's going on, like really going on for the first time in quite a yeah. long string of episodes. Cool. So let's break this down. So first of all, she like throws all these insults at Charlie. You're a spineless snowballs loser. And you know you are because that's what you really are. He tries to make some sort of excuse. So it turns out that you know they're in this um, loveless marriage. She's um, in love with a guy called Billy, who she's been having sex with. She saw him in her dream last night, and he was bleeding from the nose and mouth. And sometimes dreams hearken a truth, which is a really fantastic turn of phrase, Mm. which seems really weird. Then we get introduced to this uh, woman Tina, who she doesn't like, who made who was the last person to see Billy. I want he he tries to say I want what's best for you. I want to be able to protect you and all this sort of stuff. But she's not having a bar of it. Um, Then they talk about the sham marriage and maybe she should run the contract past Paul who's Paul who doesn't yeah, well maybe we'll find out maybe we won't <laughs> knows? there's so many names just being thrown I have around. I reckon Paul was sleeping with Charlie and that's what broke the contract Ooh. but I'm just that's so interesting probably talking shit because <laughs> you want Paul to come and give you a visit yes I have rights you gave up those rights what are you gonna go back on our contract renege on a contract that's what I will do so we have we get all this information it's, it's huge that line delivery of that's what I will do also made me wonder if Audrey was just really hammered and mm. that's why she was being extra, like, extra weird mm. about why aren't you coming with me to the thing? I'm drunk. Yeah. You should take me to the roadhouse. And, yeah, she was slurring a bit there. Yeah, and he's, I'm so sleepy but I'll go. He, changed, he eventually relents and then he says there's thousands of miles of woods out there. Wait a minute, Tina... I'll call her now. And so he eventually calls her and then they have this <laughs> extraordinarily long conversation on the on phone. On the rotary phone. On the rotary phone, yep. Yep. And, uh, and Audrey begins getting very anxious as he, Charlie gets more and more information. It's unbelievable what you're telling me. And I'm sorry to call so late. And then, then he refuses. He withholds information as does somebody who we love very much <laughs> to a great degree. And it felt to me almost like it was abuse, that withholding of information was almost an act of abuse. It also, to me, though, looked like he just got some news that made him really hate Audrey. The way he looked at her with the information. And I don't know if... Like, I'm thinking it was obviously... Well, not obviously. Nothing's obvious. But I think it had something to do with Richard killing the boy and the cars being stolen and everything like Mm -hmm. that. And it's almost like he was looking at Audrey like, what the fuck have you done? Like... Mm. Which, yeah. you know, we don't know anything. We don't know anything about the yeah. dynamic of these no. two. No. We still haven't even had solid confirmation that Richard definitely is a no. Audrey's no. son. No. There's been some copious omissions, but nothing confirmed. Mm. So what, what we managed to get out of this is Chuck reported his truck stolen. Billy stole it, but then returned it. Then Chuck, Chuck dropped the charges. Reverse it. Reverse it? Yeah. Billy had his truck stolen. Mm-hmm. By Chuck? By Chuck. Mm. And then Chuck returned the truck and Billy dropped the charges. This is the real confusing thing about the back half of this episode that where there's so many names flying around, so many people of which we haven't even met or have any context for. And, like, look, I'm sure it'll be straightened out in future episodes, but it's just a bit bonkers. Mm. I think the the thing that solidified it being Billy's truck is the scene with Andy and random guy Mm. and Andy saying but that is your truck. And the random guy is going, yeah, I know, but I can't talk to you about it right now. So that was what 
made me think, this is Billy. Yeah, okay. Why is Audrey... And the Billy went missing because mm. Bing ran into the diner at the end of part seven to ask if anybody had seen him. Uh, and we hadn't seen Billy since then and we all assumed that he'd been killed by Richard. But then it also seems from the way people have been reacting to Richard that he wasn't always like that. He was always bad, but he hadn't gone around being quite as reckless as he has more recently. Mm. So I would think... A, a bad egg who, you know, wasn't going around mowing down people. No. Beating up people and killing people. That seems like something more that Red would do, I think, if he's, like, above Richard in this scenario of introducing drugs into the Twin Peaks and there being, you know, wanting to minimise exposure to people breaking the law and stuff. Also, just psychopaths get worse with, worse with age. Mm. Like, mm. they do minor crimes in their youth and then as they get older, they start doing major crimes. So, <laughs> kind of makes sense to me. Um, so, does anyone have any theories about why Sheriff Truman went to Ben rather than Audrey, if Audrey is the mother of Richard? Well, that's interesting because you would think if Audrey was Richard's mother and is still in Twin Peaks, which we presume that she is if she's going to the roadhouse, that the sheriff would go to her as the mother. Why is he going to Ben? Yeah, and if he's on the run, if he's killed people and he's trying to you know, nearly killed Miriam as well, then that would strike me as the first place you go is call the family to mm. see if you can track this guy down. Um, this is probably wrong, but I've often thought that um, Richard might be Ben's son and they're just pretending that He's yes. not because that was like illegitimate or some scandal and yeah. And so maybe the news of his tree parentage has thrown him into this quandary mixed up with Sparkle that's turned him into this murderous psychopath. Yeah. Who knows? I Who think knows? there's a hell of a lot of secrets still swirling around the horns. So. Mm. Mm. Okay, does anyone have any theories on why, what, what this contract is and why <laughs> Audrey is married to Charlie? I have no idea, but I can't <laughs> wait to find out. <laughs> I just this is, isn't exactly a theory about that, but just as I was listening to you talk, you talking about how like you really wanted Audrey back, whereas I've kind of been on the other side of just like not really caring. I mean, not not that I don't want her there, but just that I haven't. You haven't felt that need. Yeah, it's it's kind of like to me the question when I've heard people going, "Where's Audrey? Where's Audrey?" My question has just always been, "How is she relevant to the story being told?" She's never been relevant to the story being told. And then now she's in this scene where we're just all like, what the fuck is this about? How is this relevant to the story? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't actually, like, I mean, I think it is going to be relevant, but mm. it's just kind of funny to me. Mm. <laughs> cool. And then we finish the episode with a scene at the roadhouse. Two girls sitting in a booth drinking Heineken, asking about more people we've never heard of before, namely Angela, Clark, who sounds like another no good dude who's like two-timing people. So many no good dudes. And Angela really doesn't like him. Uh, Angela's going to go crazy when she gets wind of this. She's off her meds. She's been, even been dreaming about the guy. We get another reference to dreams. And then suddenly this whole scene is interrupted by a guy called Trick who nearly got driven off the road and killed on his way over there by a guy who was driving erratically. And a farmer had to pull him out from the ditch. He nearly ran into a tree. The men are coming. Yep, and then he goes off to get a beer. And, and then we have a brief chat about how he was under house arrest, but now he's a free man. Whoopee. And the Chromatics play a song called Saturday, which is an instrumental piece. Cue credits. Starring Carl McLaughlin. Starring Carl McLaughlin, <laughs> obvs. <laughs> um, and the notice the, 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 the uh, bass player from the Chromatics still had that ring on, the green ah. ring that is like probably a prop and probably has nothing to do with the storyline, but it's a little <laughs> bit distracting if you've already seen it before. Also, who's playing the synth? Yeah. Yeah, well, that seems to drift at the end. I figured the drummer triggered it, but I could be wrong. Uh, I feel like this scene is just solidifying the 
oh, we're going to get people thrown at us who we've never seen before and we have to kind of try and, you know, piece together some kind of context. But I feel like the repetition of so many scenes where people are very agitated about something and people are very anxious about something and the recurrence of having dreams where people show up or certain things happen which make them even more agitated it's kind of fitting into yeah this idea i have of we we are building to some kind of emotional crescendo that is coming yeah 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 very quickly yeah i thought this is a really beautiful example of the way we usually and have been inured to um approach to consuming tv shows is that it all has a purpose it has a crescendo there's all sorts of you know, everything's there for a reason that we can logically explain, whereas we don't. With, with Twin Peaks, it's totally different. You consume it in a different way, and so you get all this extra colour mm. and these sorts of things that don't necessarily go anywhere. I really like this scene just as a part three of the girls gossiping at the roadhouse. Yeah. Mm. So this yeah. is the third one, and they've all been different sorts of women, and they're all just having a really good gossip. Mm. And I like that. Even if, yeah. there's, if nothing comes of it, I'm just happy that... It, yeah, it's yeah. you very rarely see in this show scenes of women just talking with each other. For me, I think um, something that I'm really interested in in this whole thing is the representations of interconnectedness. Here we've got people that we don't really know, but we get this feeling that they're being affected by this same dark energy or whatever. And it's just, yeah, it's like we're all connected and unified field and all that <laughs> stuff. Mm, yeah, so, right. yeah. Mm. And now to Theory Fish, that inordinately popular section of the pod in which we catch a theory from the internet and throw it against the fishometer. We will rate it, I caught a trout in my pyjamas, it's fresh, a green butt skunk lure, keep fishing, or there's a fish in the percolator, it stinks. <laughs> this week's theory comes from me. Similar things turned up as well on various places around the internet, but I couldn't really point out any names specifically. In 1997, Martha P. Note wrote noted in her excellent book The Passion of David Lynch, Wild at Heart in Hollywood, that the convenience store is a kind of conscious mind and that above the convenience store is subconscious mind. So is Audrey Horn trapped in her subconscious and is Charlie a doctor? Charlie's desk is backed up against a door. That seems quite a weird place to put a desk, so she can't leave. Audrey doesn't seem to be able to move her feet in that scene. She doesn't get up close to, to Charlie and one of her superpowers in seasons one and two was as soon as she was in anyone's personal space, she commanded the situation and she got people to do whatever she wanted, basically. She doesn't want to go out alone, which she also noted at Thembi. So the, the door behind Charlie looks almost exactly like the one from Laura's picture. It's got four panels in it. It's also next to the bookcase. Behind Charlie is a stair railing that looks exactly like the one from the woodsman scene. So it's possible that she's trapped in the lodge or in some sort of coma-type situation and in the convenience store from Laura's picture. There's also a reference in the conversation she has with Charlie to a crystal ball, and she's saying, you know, why don't you use your crystal ball? He literally has a crystal ball on his desk. <laughs> so it's possibly bananas, but it's also... Um, also behind Audrey is a copy of Happy Times, which is a book about a blind stepdaughter, referencing the woman from part three, and another book by T.S. Eliot called Four Quartets, which is a meditation about the past and the present and the future uniting. God, Andy, I'm so excited by this. This is amazing. I was silently losing my shit over here. So it could be coincidence. It could be just that they'd used props that were lying around to be able to make this room and they had the door lying around from another scene. I don't know. Those props sound too 
prescient or very at least something Lynch would have lying around his house and just be like, put this in this sink. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know if that's how Lynch paints though. Mm. Like there was the interview with Laura Dern where she was saying, oh, this new wardrobe assistant who hadn't worked with Lynch came up to me and asked me to choose my earrings. And I said, show them to Lynch and ask him what he wants to paint with. Right. Okay. Yeah. There is a lot of deliberateness with that Mm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm getting super excited about this just because for me, the first two series very, like I was constantly seeing parallels between it and the process of psychoanalytic theory, not theory, sorry, therapy. So like going through psychodynamic therapy and the way that you draw together things from dreams. And I just felt like there were so many parallels and I mean, maybe this is a little bit too heavy handed or yeah the gesticulations that she is making while she's on the phone were also you know really really big and it seems very weird she doesn't move yeah that struck me as really bizarre this scene to me was really perplexing i was just like i sort of got a bit bored but i was also like this is really weird like this doesn't this isn't there's something not right about this like yeah it has an entirely different tone yeah and like the thought of her being trapped in like this Doctor Hell. But it's also like a 1950s room. Like it's just paper everywhere. He has a filofax. He has he he's, has a rotary phone, as we noticed. It is very much like my brain. Yeah. Right. It's okay. Like just it, it really doesn't feel 2017. Screaming woman. <laughs> <laughs> so. So yeah. this is possible, but also we get reference to Billy and we get reference to the Roadhouse. And so, yeah. so there are references to the outside world. That's the thing. I would kind of hover in between the the green butt skunk and the... Pajamas? And the pajamas. Oh, whoa, okay. I was afraid of um, some percolating No, 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 no. no. Okay. Yeah, hovering between those because that's the thing. I feel like there is just something... Whatever the fuck is going on with Audrey and this entire scene, there's something very unusual about it. The tone is different. There's... A whole heap of possibilities kind of floating up above this and yeah the only thing that would prevent me from going full pajamas is like Thembi said is it too obvious is it in in a weird way is it too obvious and also the fact that Audrey mentions real world things that we have seen or encountered or at least we've seen scenes that seem to relate to what she's talking about yeah. So I would love it if there was something like upstairs, downstairs, mentally and world-wise mm. going on with Audrey because I think that would be fascinating and would really easily suit you into everything else that we've been experiencing so far. But, yeah, I feel like we've been given in a weird way so so little context for what was actually happening in that scene that, yeah, I feel really trepidatious on trying yeah. to... Okay say exactly what's going on mm-hmm. um i'm sorry andy oh, don't apologize um i'm not full fish in a percolator but i'm also not full green bug skunk i think possibly the symbolism could be there but i don't think it's actually happening right okay i did notice the doors as well and it kind of i don't know when you have a room that's hard to fit furniture in I just go straight to practicality. I'm like, that just must have been the best place for the table. Right, um, okay. But, um, but yeah, it is very odd, like you're saying, that she couldn't, she wasn't moving her feet. But there was actually a lot of really weird blocking in this episode. There was a lot of pairs and there was a lot of exclusion. And I wonder if her not moving was just a part of that 
they, they, he was actually it was like the, there was tension being brought into rooms with blocking which was really yeah whether her not moving is meant to say far more about her relationship with charlie than anything else mm. Mm. Yeah, because my first thought was like, what is this relationship? Who has a job that necessitates this much literal paperwork? Um, and there's no computer in this, you know, of course. And so my thought was, well, it, she doesn't need money. She well, probably wouldn't have come into some sort of monetary dependency on Charlie because it, you know, Ben is still clearly quite happy to pay for people's medical expenses. And if she's in a coma for a long period of time, for example, then he, I'm sure he would have paid for that. So I was like, well, what does she want? She'll always mix business with pleasure. And this is what she's done here as well. She's got this contract, she's got marriage, she's got the thing with Billy. She's, but she's also like, you know, quite a dominant force. And so I was like, well, if she is going to my old theory of, which I think I've mentioned a few episodes ago, where she's the mayor of Twin Peaks, then he could possibly be the editor of the, of the Twin Peaks Gazette. And they've gone into a killer partnership of like a big, you know, a big power play arrangement. This is um, I've got a trout in my trousers. Oh really? I, I okay. Like this I love the idea yeah. of Audrey is the mayor, and <laughs> that's that's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I did yeah. pull that one out a while back, but um, yeah, I mean, I did think for a while she was maybe running the Great Northern instead, but then I was like, I think I actually I, I DM'd somebody and said, no, mm. ten bucks says she's the mayor of Twin Peaks. I did wonder too. Like, as you were saying that Ben's got all this money, I actually, I'm wondering if Ben's maybe in some trouble. And because they're like, you've, you, I think you've spoken before about him being in a smaller office and it looking like he's not that, he doesn't have that much to do. And I don't know, the more I think about him and the way he's positioned in terms of his family, so he's so distant from Sylvia... He's not going to give them any more money. And I think maybe it's because he can't. And Jerry was even saying right at the top, I'm the one who's making the money with yep, all true. my weed. And, I've, and I feel like it does seem like Ben's kind of demoted himself almost. Yeah. Um, well, I think the economics of Twin Peaks has changed a lot. And so mm. it's more of a like an exurb of a big city or it has a bunch of trucks just going straight through. So... The, and also there's no – I mean, it's a very different show. Things are always different. But I, I was reminded in the really long scene we have in the Great Northern, nothing's going on. In in the 90s there were, I don't know, fucking – The Icelanders. There were the Icelanders. Yeah. There were the bouncy ball people. Like <laughs> there, was, there was people there all the time and there was always a ruckus. And here it's quiet enough where you can hear a tiny hum – and the only person coming through is Sheriff Truman to tell you that your grandson's a dickhead. Like, <laughs> like that's news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think Ben has much to do. No. Yeah. I'm liking this. This is good. This is good mm. theorising, friends. Yeah. And also in, in a reference to Audrey, I, it did remind me of other women we've seen get very agitated at their husbands. And there's never been a, just a nagging wife. That doesn't seem to exist in Lynch as well. These are always women expressing pain or no. they've always They always suffered. have a reason. They always have a reason to be really anxious. And you've mentioned before when we were talking about okay. Frank Truman's wife. Ah, yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And the way that at first it's kind of played for laughs and then you're like, oh, there's a trauma here as well. And this is kind of is, is the same with Sarah Palmer, of course. Diane is, you know, is expressing... You know, a traumatic past in you know in in a way as well, even if, though she tends to be very negative and you know very. Except defensive. when she's so kind to the wait staff in the hotel, yeah. Which to all of the people saying Diane's bad, in your face. Yeah. No <laughs> one who's bad is kind to wait staff. A hundred percent. Yeah. 
Um, another thing of note is that there are only four tracks left on the soundtrack to Twin Peaks The Return that we haven't heard yet. Oh, dun, dun, dun. And we've got I six episodes to go. Oh, sorry. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> I started getting really sad thinking that now we're two-thirds of the way through and you just made it even sadder. Sorry. Somebody pointed out six hours. There is only six hours left. (gasps) They're going to be the best six hours of my life. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's true. It's gonna be pretty good. Hmm. Like I'm, I'm feeling like gears are shifting. Like we're, we're gonna go up a gear quite soon. Yeah, but again, we're still not at Jack Rabbits. We got more stuff that we need to line up before we get there, or more backstory we need to have explained. Do we, Andy? Yeah, I think. Do that, we just go full throttle? Well, I know. I think the Blue Rose conversation had to happen beforehand, mm. just to give it some sort of frosty and real, you know, anchor to reality. Mm. Oh, I just also realised that we've, we're at an even number with this one. And I've sort of seen that episodes have been pairing up. And actually, it totally makes sense that this episode and 11 are like a pair because we were getting soap opera realness we the were. whole time. All of the musical cues. I mean, it got a little bit weirder in places too. But there was so much of ye oldy Twin Peaks, yes. I'm a soap opera, look yep. at me, I'm a soap opera in both of these episodes. And it was... Yeah. Yeah, very good point. And also, like, from two episodes ago, my theory fish was we're going to see... Cooper some be somewhat sort of a semblance of his older self in part 13. Was this 13? Next, this that's next week, okay. yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, ne- I was going to say, just <laughs> the ball hitting his face. old Cooper's back. And because next week's episode is called What Story Is That, Charlie? Which also ties into my Charlie as newspaper editor. Mm. Which I think, I, I just think that's what Frost and Lynch think an editor looks like. Yeah. I've, I've, I kind of do too. I've got lots of paper. Yeah. I've got a deadline. Yeah. Oh my god. I can't be going and wandering out in the nighttime. Paper everywhere. Yeah. It would so make sense for a, like a news editor and a mayor to have a contract and have something. Well, it happened in se- in season two because we had the the Milford yes. duality of mayor and editor. Maybe Charlie's a Milford. Oh, whoa, mind blowing. Yeah, that's pro- <laughs> that, for sure. That sort of legacy dynasty thing happens yes. a lot in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Mm. The Milfords and the Horns have to have like. The yeah. Trumans, the nepotism everywhere. As oh, we, yeah. my God, saying. there's so many fish in our trousers right now. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for making it to the end of Twin Peaks. Oh, sorry, does anyone else have anything they want to share before? Do I need to explain the paternalism thing? Yeah, I do it. I got yeah. pretty yeah. heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. I have a sense of a theme of each mm-hmm. episode that I watch, and this mm-hmm. one, I was being hit in the head with a baseball that this is about <laughs> paternalism. And then we had, no, daddy. And I was just like, okay, Lynch, cool. I got it. And now we all do too, <laughs> in case we didn't already. Well, it's funny because she was like, it was just so obvious. And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't notice that at all. <laughs> it's a mirror. I was thinking about my dad. I don't know. <laughs> this is just the great reflection of Twin Peaks means something different to us all. Mm. And on that note... Yeah. Thank you very much for making it at the end of uh, part 12 discussion of Twin Peaks The Return. You can find us online at TP Season 3. You can find me at Andy Ricky. TP Season 3 podcast at gmail.com is a very useful way of getting in touch with anybody you've heard talking on this show. Yes. But thank you so much, Jess and Thembi, for coming on. It was a bloody delight yeah. having thank you both here. Thank, yeah, you, thank you very much. Please come back. <laughs>
it's working for me, Dr. Amp. <laughs> <laughs>